For October 20th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 329. You're a loose cannon, but you're a dang good time lord. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, and I am here with Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. Hey, Mark. Hey, Matt. I like How you the- doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Never felt better. Um, you sound like you never felt better. Oh, good. That's, <laughs> we aim to please here. That's, that's the kind of quality entertainment you can expect from overthinking its house of podcasts, uh, which is different from the international house of pancakes. In fact, confusion between overthinking its house of podcasts and international house of pancakes is the number one cause of consumer dissatisfaction in the support emails we receive uh, at our, you know, through our contact form. Also, neither of us have changed our decor at all since 2008, but uh, <laughs> that's an entire other subject that we could get into some other time. 2012, the latest overthinking at Design Refresh was 2012. <laughs> I know because I named the WordPress themes the, the uh, OTI and the year, so OTI 2012 is the last one I was working on. Uh, but it does, it does provide a good log of my shame uh, because as I sort of work on the next one, it, it has had a couple of times to go from... OTI 2012B to OTI 2013 to OTI 2014 and now 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 who knows what so that's you know but when you're a when you're a one man development shop and you know you have clients that actually pay you money there's there's not a lot that you can do uh, about that um, speaking of paying us money hey have you ever bought anything on Amazon if you're like most Americans you haven't but if you're like our audience you probably have in fact it's probably you probably buy more things from Amazon than you buy really from any other online retailer in fact let me put this. Let me phrase this as a challenge. If you buy from a different online retailer than Amazon, more than you buy from Amazon, would you please uh, leave a comment on the show notes for this episode and tell us what retailer it is? I mean, within reason. We don't want you to, to reveal any sort of personally identifiable information or anything, uh, anything embarrassing. Um, but if you buy for Amaz- from Amazon, you can support Overthinking It by using our affiliate link, which uh, you'll find on the homepage, at the bottom of the sidebar in the homepage on Amazon. You can actually just set that to your bookmark from, for, from Amazon. That would be uh, doing us a great favor. And since we're doing all this e-commerce anyway, uh, when you use that link, overthinking it, you don't pay anything more, but overthinking it gets a little kickback from, uh, from what you do, um, from what you buy there. Even if you don't buy the thing, the specific thing that we link to, you, uh, whatever you buy in that session um, uh, helps to support us. We appreciate it. Uh, every year around Christmas, we do a big push around this, but it continues all year round. No need to stop. So consider that our, our, our podcast today is brought to us by you uh, using our link when you enter Amazon.com. We uh, really appreciate it when you do. All right. Among, question- among the overthinkers, I just want to interject, there is a legend of an ancient Re- listener, uh, reader who purchased an entire drum set off Amazon.com using our affiliate link and provided a non-trivial slice of our revenue for an entire year. So, you there's also a legend that in the future that person will come back or be reincarnated as someone else who also buys an entire drum set using our affiliate link. I don't know if you believe in prophecy, guys, or in destiny or chosen ones. But if you do, 
I, I would keep the Amazon affiliate link for overthinking it at the ready because it's right. good sort so of thing. I just Googled, uh, I, not Googled, I Amazon searched for uh, piano. You can't buy a, an actual grand piano on uh on amazon at least as far at least as far as i can tell uh freaking bezos what are you doing bezos get your freaking act together yeah i would like i would really love it if you could buy a hundred and twenty five thousand dollar uh we would continue to operate overthinking it for decades to come if you bought a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars steinway uh new on amazon and let us have the four percent kickback or whatever they uh you know whatever they give you for that um Wow, wait, I just did that math. That's how sad our lives are. Question of the week, guys. <laughs> uh, this podcast is not about money. It's about fun. So let's, we're going to talk about fun instead of money. Question oh, of the week, let's do it. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my landlord fun <laughs> on the first of the month this year. I'm going to bring my landlord indie credibility uh, th- this week. I'm going to pay my rent with my integrity. Um, when you said fun, it sounded like it ended with a period, like a certain Grammy award-winning band that shares the same sentence. <laughs> uh, so here's the, here's the thing. We're, we're into the new television season. I mean, it's such that, uh, you know, in as, in as much as that thing exists anymore. Um, so what, uh, what, what have you watched? What new television have you watched uh, within the last week or within the beginning of the, the TV season that you are excited about? Um, first, uh, first in the alphabet, drink, it's Peter Fenzel. Thanks very much. Now, it's not too common that I watch a television show for the first time years after I see a pie chart that talks about it, that sticks in my mind, that sticks in my craw. But this week, I got to watch for the first time ever, I believe. Actually, I think it might have been last week that I watched for the first time ever, but uh, I felt like the repeat watching, or the watching that I did this week, when it was like, oh, the new one is available, showed that I was actually watching, qua watching this TV show uh, for the first time. Uh, The Biggest Loser uh, is a show that I watched, and that's a show that I watched that I really enjoyed. The pie chart I'm referring to is, of course, uh, Jack Donaghy's pie chart on 30 Rock, where he describes the NBC programming strategy as, you know, most Mostly Biggest Loser, and then a little slice of everything else, and a medium-sized slice of Make It 1998 again, or 1997 again, through Science or Magic. Uh, But so The Biggest Loser (laughs) comprises a great share of the energy. Uh, The Biggest Loser is a great show. Oh my goodness, is it a really good show. I enjoy that show a lot. That show is so sentimental, and I love sentimentalism. It's melodramatic. I remember when I first watched... um, Temptation Island 2. Back when reality shows, as they are now, were a new thing because of the writer's strike and everything that made them come into being. Uh, Back when, uh, gosh, what was that, 2002 that that writer's strike happened? We got to confirm that. Um, Sometime in the last decade. uh, It it was not sometime in the last decade. It was when we were still in college uh, because I remember – uh, oh no! Maybe was it 2007? Really? Was it that recent? The, the one that I'm thinking about that like springboarded all of these uh, reality shows. Any rate, putting that aside for the moment, and putting uh, aside the fact that we haven't been in college for over a decade, which just you know yeah. that's that's freaking me out right now. Uh, well, there's a lot of things to be scared about if you stare into the open maw of existence. But not, if you watch The Biggest Loser, you get to feel good about people losing weight. And it gives you temporary reprieve from the vast emptiness of existential horror. So that's a good thing. Uh, because, uh, um, But yeah, but I, I enjoyed it. I, one of the things that I enjoy, legitimately enjoy about reality shows, and I very rarely watch the reality shows. I watched them uh, up until um, the Joe Schmo show came out, which was like 2004. So yeah, so it was definitely – it was when I was still living in New York. Um, 
that I that I sort of stopped watching reality shows because I, I felt like the first season of the Joe Schmo show was just such a summation and surpassing and indictment and embracing. It was just like such in totality the fulfillment of everything that I ever wanted reality shows to be. So I felt like I didn't really have to watch them anymore. The one that I did watch, So You Think You Can Dance, which I don't necessarily think of as a reality show so much uh, because it was mostly the dancing. But um, well, that's a talent uh, show, right? That's I mean, a talent yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. So I watched that, and uh, and then and of course there are like the ones about building houses and i watched dirty jobs which i don't consider to be a reality show perhaps because it's too real uh but um but anyway biggest loser i one of the things i love about reality shows when i do watch them is the way that they manufacture sentimentality and melodrama uh from just this tons and tons of footage using like music and cuts even when things are like really innocuous or like not particularly compelling right it's like they can take things where it's just somebody is sitting on a bench looking around and all of a sudden it's like the edge of your seat most exciting thing in the world yeah i'd say there's Um, a certain pleasure and satisfaction that comes from being aware of those tropes um and uh and and that 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 awareness does not um mean that you preclude yourself from uh feeling the effect of those tropes either right that's just sort of like the kind of the 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 thesis of what we're thinking right you can have that sort of cake and eat it too at the same time Exactly. And well, you don't have the cake you needed to because then your whole team, maybe you'll get immunity for eating the cake for the week, but then you could hold your whole team down and you'd fall under the red line. There you, so go. you can't have your cake. Uh, so no. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, The Biggest Loser is also like an hour-long show where half of the hour is them weighing in, which is pretty funny. Um, that it's like half of it is basically the results of the first half of the show, which comprises an entire week of real time. I mean, I think Um, that that's that's just like reprehensible fat shaming, right? To act like it really takes that long to hoist them up onto the scale. It's not not that the actual process of them getting on the scale takes a long time or is legit. Well, you don't know. The show's edited. I mean, maybe it does take that (laughs) long. No, it doesn't. No. As somebody somebody really believes in what these people are doing and like thinks it's a really good thing and that they're really good no let's not be mean to them no it's they have a scale that beeps a lot <laughs> have you guys never watched the biggest loser i've seen the show yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah. and so they wave somebody in and then they're like are they 350 280 170 570 202 and they just like scroll through random numbers and beep and they play really dramatic music and they zoom in on everybody's face and then they go to commercial for five minutes and then they come back and they start again and they beep the numbers and they show everyone's face and they show the face of the person and they play the music and they beep the numbers and then it's like seven pounds and they're like yes uh and it's just it's i don't know it's um i'm not going to go on for it but for too much longer um but i will say that that the satisfaction that i feel in this sort of release of tension in one of those big biggest loser buildups is like great proof that this sort of stuff is really functional and not really intrinsically rooted in any sort of particular meaning right the idea that it's like you can create kind of like rising action climax in denouement uh as as sort of like a shape of of feelings um and you can populate that shape with any number of contents or meanings that you want and it can if you have the shape then there's still a pretty good chance that it will result in the effects that you want the other thing i say there are things that legitimately make you cry like when the guy who got voted off the show this week spoilers uh he was the guy he was the he was the guy the older guy whose son had died in iraq you know in the army or whatever and he went to his son's grave to thank him for motivating him to get himself back into shape (laughs) ryan was so sad man <laughs> so intense. Anyway, so I watched Biggest Loser, and and that, as I've been told by Jack Donaghy, is basically the only relevant show currently on television, as far as NBC is concerned. So, uh, and I enjoyed it. So there you go. There's my little love letter to Biggest Loser. Nice, uh, Mark Lee. 
Hey, so my answer is kind of similar to Pete's in that um, it's not like the, um, what do you call it, golden age of television, critically acclaimed sort of stuff, right? Pete goes with the reality show. I'm going with the multi-camera sitcom with a laugh track, which I am led to believe in certain corners of the internet in the commentary at um, people poo-poo this sort of show. But I enjoy this one a lot. It's Christella, uh, the ABC sitcom uh, that is about prominently about a Latina woman and uh, her family and uh, balancing her professional life with her um, home life and her um, and her uh, Latina ethnicity with uh, the uh, sort of mainstream culture and uh, a boss who makes fun of her, uh, her ethnicity. Mark, um, so, Mark yes. Can yes, she yes, have yes, it all? Uh, I, I think she can. Matt, I think she can. <laughs> well, that's okay. She's living like she's like living in uh, her sister's home with her mother and her sister and her brother-in-law and she doesn't have any kids and she's like still working her way through law school so she doesn't quite have it all yet but can she i think she can i think she can do it okay so there's a few things to talk about uh this show um one is that like the fact that i consume all my television through hulu on my apple tv drastically changes like a lot of things i perceive about television uh, compared to uh, the traditional landscape and the way I think still a majority of America consumes television. When I uh, put Cristela on, when my wife and I put Cristela on, on the TV, the only thing we knew about it really was that uh, it was one of the variety crop, crop of new television shows that are um, addressing, you know, have this sort of this like identity politics thing going on, right? Blackish with the, um, obviously, that African Americans, uh, uh, Cristela, and there's uh, whatever the show about um, Jane the Virgin, about Hispanic Americans, and then later on, I think in 2015, is going to be uh, fresh off the boat about Asian Americans. Um, so this is all part of that ongoing trend. We just knew it was basically about that. We put it on, we enjoyed it, we watched two episodes of it, um, and I-, I thought it was great. Uh, a lot of heart. But uh, pulling up the IMDb, um, I see that it's uh, given a very uncharitable, what, 5.9 rating. And just for a uh, point of reference, Parks and Recreation, Critical Darling, gets an 8.6. Uh, it's not a multi-camera. Laugh Tracks com is the opposite of that. Um, and the other thing is that I, I saw on the, uh, on the Wikipedia page that it has the time slot of Friday night at 8.30 p.m., which, if right. I remember correctly from my industry uh, uh, info, is a time slot of death. It's where, they, it's where the network puts something that doesn't have a lot of faith in. Um, and seeing those two bits of information like kind of drastically skews um, uh, some of my perceptions of at least how the show is sort of being broadly received. Um, and I, I feel like if I knew that going into it, like I would have, uh, uh, my expectations were, were, were low going into it. It might have been even lower going in. So it's all even more pleasant of a surprise, but also just like a, a commentary on how, um, how, uh, the, the the method which you view television can uh, very much influence how you perceive it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, do you do you read? I don't know media commentators. I I like you know I've but, I've the made trades a, like you probably subscribe to Variety, Matt. Like you've got I, like well, a I don't subscribe that's big, to Variety. Huge broadsheet on your on your uh, coffee table, that right? That thing costs. Uh, I, I have a lot of Hollywood reporters, but that's for different reasons. Um, the uh, yeah, no, those things cost an arm and a leg. The um, the thing though, like that, I do every year is I pull out the new season fall arts preview out of the New York Times Sunday uh, Sunday paper. That's you know always this big section with with feature articles and listings about what's coming up this year in you know TV, in theater, in film, in music, and all kinds of things. And and like for ten years, uh, 
I have an unbroken streak of pulling this out of the paper with the intention of reading it and, and never actually getting to it, never actually getting to reading the, uh, reading about these things. So I'm very innocent of, I mean, other than like what people say on Twitter and Facebook, I'm really innocent of a lot of what people say, uh, about, you know, show about shows and things like this when, when I go into them. But I suppose if you sort of, uh, if you do read those things, like a lot of those, a lot of those critics will sort of chew your food for you, um, and try to, you know, I don't know, try to like, I think there's also like a, a benefit to them for like being snarky or being sort of, uh, jerks about the being jerks about the shows, right? Like, uh, what, like does the AV club fall in this category too? With well, like, yeah, um, I, their letter I, I, I like a lot of the criticism that I read on the a- AV club and it seems, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to hate on the AV. Yeah. Club. I mean, I mean, to that point, the AV club is actually pretty, uh, was giving the show, uh, in, not inconsiderable praise. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I wonder if Normcore is, means the three camera sitcom with a laugh track is back. That's interesting. What is the most normcore show? Huh, huh. I mean, I mean, because I don't think it's f- Friends necessarily, right? Like, I mean, because that's the like, show I go to. Current show or or historical? Oh, all time. Most normcore show of all time. Like, for keeping in mind that normcore is also cool, right? That normcore is kind of recontextualizing uh, things that are what a pedestrian, I suppose, from a past, from a recent time period that doesn't feel overly overwhelmed with nostalgia. But which is still not present, right? I mean, and, all, all in the family, the honeymooners. I love Lucy. Oh, that's. I think those are way too old to be normcore, right? Yeah. Like, pe- normcore stuff is like, like Cheers, maybe. Uh, might be norm. No, I mean like. Uh, do, you, do you think Night Court is normcore? Night Court, Night, Night Court would be normcore. Yeah, yeah. Night Court's totally normcore. You're right. You're totally right because it's it's it, you watch Night Court and it's actually a little bit funny and edgy, right? But it's but it's also like you know a kind of show that was just on TV for a really long time and never really made a lot of waves in terms of the public perception of it, right? Sure. So at the time, it was kind of under the radar, but in retrospect, there's something to see there. There's something to discover. So those guys, uh, I mean, I think it made it into, into syndication, right? And like those guys got, yeah. uh, uh, you know, they made their FU money from that, from that show, yeah. I think. Yeah. And, Harry and the Hendersons and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, that was my, it was totally inappropriate for me to watch it when I was young, but I did. And I didn't understand what was going on a lot of the time, uh, when the, you know, cause it's night court, right? It's like, you know, bus for solicitation and things like this. Um, I mean, the top three crimes were like solicitation, solicitation, and solicitation, you know, on, on night court. And I, I, my point is I was exposed to things I really ought not to have been exposed to when I was a child. Wait, Matt. Uh, when you said "fu money," is that like an industry term, or is that basically like the money you earn? Very basically, to say like "screw all of you, I don't care what I'm doing anymore." Yeah, that's. I don't know if it's a uh, an entertainment industry term. I've heard it. No, used it's in, not. Yeah, yeah, in all kinds in all kinds of things, right? Like hedge fund managers make their "fu money." You know, yeah, it's it's an amount of money sufficient to to kind of do your own thing, uh, at least until the revolution comes. <laughs> you know, which, which, judging from Christella on ABC, is going to be sooner than we think, right? Uh, it's happening, yeah. Let, let Latino women 
um, taken uh, taken over. Well, the, right, like because the patriarchy tumbling is is uh, is a necessary condition for Cristela to have it all, and and so. Well, I just I don't look at the future and see a dystopian hexscape of collapse. I look at the future and I see an opportunity to be inspired by all of you here today who are working hard to lose as much weight as you possibly can because you believe in each other and you believe in the better life that you could have on the other side of this. So I want to see you work and I want to see you guys stay committed, you know, because because I I believe in you and I know you believe in yourselves and that's really what matters. And when you go back to your families at the end of this season, I want you all to know. And I want them to know, and I want them to know about you knowing about them how hard you worked. All right, people, let's do this. Let's 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 do this. Biggest loser style. Yeah. Oh, that show is so fun. I love this. <laughs> well, my, you see, and here's mine. I look into the future, and I see the future, the past, the present, all uh, all wibbly wimbly, timely wimbly, uh, <laughs> move together. Um, I never have been a Doctor Who fan. Like, I don't have a favorite Doctor. I, you know, I probably could name the ones in the 2005 remake, but uh, you know, but but yeah i'd be guessing on uh, on the really good looking one um the uh but my girlfriend is a big doctor who fan uh which you know i don't know i take i i take a certain amount of pride in that like that that she is in fact geekier than than i am right i am more sort of mainstream uh, than she is largely because we're single handedly in our household giving lie to the to the like the fake geek girl uh meme which is offensive and awful um so she uh she actually introduced me to Doctor Who and uh she thought that the change of doctor to the Peter Capaldi doctor would be a good opportunity to uh to get me on board and so uh so I've been watching that um for the you know for the first time i i suppose i should go back to 2005 and watch the current series and i suppose if i get really hardcore uh there's all the uh the very very old ones and then if you get really really hardcore there's like uh radio shows that you can probably find on the internet somewhere as as downloadable audio and i suppose there was probably like a you know, I don't know, a, a thing where you would write in and send box tops and they were, you know, I mean, I don't know, you could go really far down the rabbit hole with yeah. it. But I've been, yeah. uh, I've been watching it and I've been enjoying it. I, you know, I don't know. I like, I, I like it a lot. That's awesome. I love, I love the new doctor. I love Peter Capaldi as Doctor Who. It's such a, it is, I'm, I, I'm a little bit nervous because it feels like as I'm watching it, that it ought to be a less successful show than the show has been up until this point because it makes so many sacrifices uh, that make the show so much better that other shows routinely don't make out of fear of losing their audience. Right. That that actually yeah. like that's been something I've noticed too. It it seems to me, I mean, and I you know, I I don't have a super deep knowledge of it, so I'm going to speak as an expert now. Um the uh it seems to me that th- they don't make a lot of concessions to your they don't make a lot of concessions to kind of making it easy for you, right? Like yeah. uh uh, the, you know, it's very moody. Um, there isn't a lot of, there isn't a ton of exposition. You're really kind of like David Simon style kind of shoved into the middle and expected to, uh, expected to work your way out. Now they have more conventional kind of mystery of the week structures than, than a lot of David Simon shows, but like, yeah, but there aren't a lot of, a lot of signposts and, and like Peter Capaldi sort of dares to be unpleasant, which is, uh, I, you know, I don't know, really, 
you know, really refreshing and not, not like, not Vic Mackey unpleasant, right? Like, yes, not right, like, right. not like, oh, he's an anti-hero, but he's so charismatic. He's Tony Soprano. He's Walter White. We just love him. But like, to, uh, yeah. being really a dick, right? Yeah. Like, it's, like di- it's, it's not like, you know, you're a loose cannon, but you're a dang good Time Lord. No, it's not like that at all. <laughs> no, no, no. He's actually a jerk. He's actually has social problems. And like, he actually doesn't get along with people. And, and, and he doesn't get along with his friend. He doesn't get along with his companion, right? Which is – and, like, not in the sort of trivial ways. Now, I've – the first thing I'll say based on everything that you said right now is you don't have to think about anything other than the reboot of the show at this point. There's a lot of it. show's been going on for a long time. There's, like, what, seven seasons now or something? And, you know, and there's Christmas specials and miniseries and all sorts of other kinds of things or mini movies. So don't worry about the Tom Baker stuff. Don't worry about the old stuff. Don't worry about the uh, – think of it as this is a show that has an unprecedented amount of Wikipedia stuff about it that you can read if you want to. But you don't have to go back and watch the old ones. It doesn't matter. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it's – and it, it wasn't like this so much in the rest of the reboot to the degree that it is now where, yes, like there were elements of the relationship between the Doctor and the Companion, which is the core relationship in the show that always drives the show forward. And there were aspects of it that identified how this sort of like – it's very heteronormative. You know, it's very like and, – and I say heteronormative. I mean this is like – really heteronormative isn't like there's a man who's older and more experienced and there's a woman who is younger and less experienced but is the emotional one that understands people and he's the smart one who understands machines right and there's a lot about it that it's sort of like eh, this is kind of a problem now Shana Malowski of course did an article about this a while ago and all sorts of Doctor Who fans and also just general uh, nincompoops got up in arms about it and angry at us in the thread so I won't go into it too much detail it's not really that important what's important now is that this show the show now that is, is going on now is just so much more sophisticated. Um, you know, the, the like the conversations and the emotional subtext of the conversation between the doctor and the companion are at a much higher level, I think, in terms of their plausibility, in terms of the way that they relate in a kind of generative, creative way to the human condition. Right? It's like in terms of the fact that it's trying to do something that's at least a little bit new, right? Like, and I mean, it might be based in some of the old Doctor Who stuff, and there's a legacy of him being kind of a bigger jerk than is palatable for TV audiences these days. Um, but yeah, no, I'm just totally jazzed. I love the new Doctor Who. Um, and I would, yeah, and I would tell you, if you went back and you watched it up until this point, uh, you would notice there have been a lot, of, there's a lot of differences. It changed, it's changed a lot, especially this season, I think. It's changed a lot. And just making him older, right? The last one, they started him, he was like 26 and he's playing a guy who's 900 years old and they got an actor who's 26 because it's like, hey, he's fun, he's young, he's hip, he's sexy, right? Like, he's cool, he's cute, you know, and all this other stuff because we got to put that on television. And it did, did, and it worked, and it was good, you know, but now it's like, hey, by the way, you know, he's a misanthrope who sort of has kind of amnesia but kind of not and he also says nasty things to younger people as older people often do um and they also say nasty things to him and nobody really gets along and they have arguments about being veterans of wars they disapprove of politically and stuff it's good anyway that's enough of my ranting and raving about how much i like the new doctor who season yeah the listen episode in particular is just so good get really well yeah and that was the one it's like i felt like i missed the first 10 minutes of setup uh, yeah. you know, when I watched that episode, right. And it, mm-hmm. it, it was, uh, cause it was like immediately, like it just cut right to the chase with like him kind of being unpleasant and like asking, asking the question rather than, you know, rather than like an establishing shot of like, you know, uh, pan down on the TARDIS and way, you know, whatever. Um, 
that, anyway, so it's it's been good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This is a good season to uh, to get into if you haven't, or I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there's a huge. Uh, amount of knowledge in our in our audience and people can people can um you know uh explain all kinds of things to me yeah uh, oh, well, like i wanted to touch on of their time before we move on i did want to touch on one more thing because you mentioned how he's not like vic Mackey, and he's also not like tony soprano he's also not like walter white and i think that this is really important about what makes the show good and it makes me think of it makes me think of will ferrell um, so think about like Anchorman, right? You think about Will Ferrell as Ron Burgundy. Um, and this is something that I teach to people that I direct in comedy shows and stuff, which is that there are – he gives off constant cues uh, that he is joking uh, to make the audience comfortable with the things that he says and does. Right, because like with when you're watching Ron Burgundy in Anchorman, there are very few times when he says something that's like offensive or that's you know insensitive or rude or nasty, and he says a lot of these things, but he he couches it in this way that it's like the things that I'm saying are you know this is this is a self commentary on itself somewhat. I'm somewhat aware of it. The main point of it is that they're signaling to the audience like you should be comfortable with what I'm saying. Like right now, I don't want you – not that you should be comfortable like with what I'm saying in the context of my universe, but like you sitting at home, you should, you should feel okay while watching this scene. I don't want you to be squicked out or feel weird. There's a point to this. There's a joke. If you watch it, there's going to be a joke. You're going to laugh. It's going to be fine. There's not like you – you know, it's not like Christina Applegate walks into the room and you're like, oh my god, this is going to be terrible, right? Because there's this communication and it has to do with charisma and it has to do with the way that the character is portrayed relative to – to sort of verisimilitude, right, and what you would expect and tropes and, and all sorts of traditions. And if you look at characters like Walter White, like Tony Soprano, like Vic Mackey, who are these power fantasy characters who do bad things and things that ought to make us uncomfortable and that the shows challenge us to see as uncomfortable while we also like them, right? Like, like there is a whole bunch of kind of Will Ferrelling going on where they're like doing things to cue you in that you as the audience at home should be at least a little bit on their side or hear them out or like you shouldn't be like uncomfortable in your seat. The Peter Capaldi doctor says things that make you squirm in your seat. And they're like – and oftentimes they're just in venal regular conversations. Like he'll just come out and say that a woman is ugly like to her face who's a friend of his, right? And it's not funny. Right. And it's like and it's like, why would he do that? You know, and it makes you feel like, oh, man, like that's just uncomfortable and bad. Right. Like, why would you be so rude? Why would you be so now? Na- like, well, you got to be so rude. Sorry, that's a song on the radio right now. But it's like he he doesn't couch what he's doing. He has plenty of charisma. He has plenty of command of the camera, but he doesn't couch what he's doing in like veneers of familiarity and veneers of comfort. Um, and there's just it's a performative thing, and and I'm, I'm sure it has a lot to do with how the character is written and shot as well. Um, but it's just I just think it's so interesting, especially because there's been and I think maybe maybe something in that broader A.O. Scott conversation that we sort of had a couple weeks ago has something to do with this. But there's a general dissatisfaction with like the Don Drapers of the world and the and the Walter Whites of the world, even as they've presented us with these really cool stories. There's a general dissatisfaction that there's something about general human experience that's kind of being left out, and I think. If you're looking for it in pop culture today, the Peter Capaldi doctor on Doctor Who is a pretty good place to start looking for it. Sure. I mean, like Uh, a lot of the, even, even if it's not in the performance, right? Like Don Draper is lionized a lot by the camera. 
uh, even if it's not sort of John Hamm signaling in the way that Will Ferrell signals, right? Like one of yeah. the one of the things that you said uh, about Anchorman that that made so much sense to me at the time um, that I've kind of carried as a touchstone is that uh, uh, Anchorman is a is a farce disguised as a satire, or it's yep. a, it's a farce claiming to be a satire, right? The point is that it's it's silly, right? And and the silliness is on display for everybody to see. Um, there is nothing being satirized, right? Because the because no one no one doesn't know that being a jerk is bad, right? Right, like, right, right. No one doesn't know uh, that you can't be rude like that to people, right? Like there's yeah. no there's no controversy about that, right? There's no sort of social comment uh, when you know the the social comment you're making is true more or less by definition. Um, but that's I mean. It's sort of it's a sort of interesting thing, right? Like um, I, I talk about this all the time on TFT, but uh, Robert Frost called ulteriority the uh, the gap between what a work of art purports to mean and what it actually means, you know, upon examination. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of craft and poetry that goes uh, that goes into a work's ulteriority, and sort of I, I sort of wonder what. Um, I sort of wonder what is being transacted with the audience when it's like, well, I'm going to feed you one dish, but we're all going to pretend that it's a different dish while you're eating it, right? Mm, yeah. And actually, you even say that, and I'm thinking about Jenna Coleman, who plays the companion on Doctor Who, as far as I'm watching it. I'm sh- maybe the show has progressed past it or something. I don't know. Because um, it's weird. It's one of those British shows where it's run in the future, and <laughs> they make shows in the future in England. That's how it works. That's why the Downton Abbey episodes exist, but I haven't seen them yet. It's because they are in a time vortex. No, there's not actually a time vortex between British television and American television. Uh, it's merely a scheduling complication. But no, it's this idea that, like, she actually she's invested she's involved in that specific sort of conflict on her show right the character of clara oswald where it's like you you kind of are telling me that this adventure that we're having is one thing but my experience of it is different and i need you if i'm going to sort of be with you and trust you and be around you to kind of validate my experience a little bit about how this is different from what you're saying it is now you're kind of lying to me and feeding me a line and you're not really caring about me right like that's you know, there's the, the the ulteriority of the Doctor is being examined a lot this season in Doctor Who, and I think in there is a larger discussion that we're having and that we could continue to have for longer than the pockets run about the ulteriority present in 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 protagonistic television right now, like sort of dr- high drama prestige protagonist. Can we coin a term for like a prestige protagonist, prestagenist, prost? I can't figure it out. Well, I think we but. could call him Plantagenet, right? In, on- <laughs> in honor, well, like this <laughs> in honor in of honor the first of- one, right? Like, oh, in the honor of the Tudors, no, in honor, honor of, the- of uh, uh, Shakespeare's Richard the Third. Oh, okay, okay. I'm like the Tudors is a pretty good show, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put it as chief among these exemplar, um, especially because as uh, because um, Natalie Dormer just stole that whole second season, but. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Protagonist-driven prestige television. The Good Wife is in there, you know, uh, where it's like, look at this person who's going to win an Emmy. And this is not what Game of Thrones is. Game of Thrones is something else. But anyway, yeah, Biggest Loser. And you know what? They should do a crossover where Doctor Who has to lose 400 pounds, and he goes on the Biggest Loser 
And Jillian Michaels isn't on it anymore. So if you're scared about her being mean, you know, she also complained that they made her too mean on the show. They would edit selectively, and she's not really as mean as she was on the show in real life. And so she left the show. Uh, so they replaced her with somebody, and now they're making her person a lot nicer. So if you were going to be intimidated by Jillian Michaels, and that's why you didn't watch The Biggest Loser, uh, she left the show. She's actually going to be the next companion for the Doctor. Uh, <laughs> the next season of Doctor Who. It's going to be Doctor Who and Jillian Michaels, and they're going to just sweat it out. They're just going to sweat it out, and they're going to they're going to make your dreams possible in future episodes. And scene. Um, I mean, it's interesting talking talking about the uh, uh, interesting talking about TV, right? Because TV is sort of a day to day activity, and very often we like we focus this. We are, are sort of a protagonist driven podcast. Um, we focus the podcast around something, but like there is a day to day level of pop culture engagement that we don't uh, that we don't address, right? I mean, I don't know, Mark. Tell me what you did uh, pop pop culture wise this week. Uh, pop culture wise, like filling it mean filling in the gaps of uh, existential dread that I face, <laughs> <Yeah>. in, my, <laughs> that I face yes. in my job and personal commitment. Yeah, what combinations of words and pictures made you look away from the void a little bit this week? <laughs> uh, aside from the aforementioned Cristela, right? Okay, so um, when we talk about television, a day to day thing. Um, and I think that is very much true for most people. It has not been the case for most of my life, actually. I believe I mentioned this on the podcast before that I probably watched the least television among um, the overthinking it crew. Like I'd say, I'm like bottom 25th percentile. And um, I don't know. It's like uh, when I'm home during evening hours, I, I feel more in- inclined to be on the computer or trying to like create things rather than to sit back and like watch a lot of television. Or maybe it's like I prefer the concise uh, open and closed narrative of a two hour long feature movie but for whatever the reason for whatever uh my my personal preferences i haven't watched a lot of television uh and have been like really locked into ch- into shows um a lot of that's changed um due to marriage and my wife uh being a big fan of television and uh and watching a lot of uh a lot of shows sort of uh in in the complete fashion so um you know over the year uh, or so that uh with years that we've been together the year we've been married um i've definitely stepped on my television watching game and have found um the comfort in sort of the the not the daily routine but the weekly routine of like of being able to catch moments uh and and, uh, and fill it in with the shows that you watch together when i say not daily because uh as i mentioned before you know i'm not like on the network television schedule broadcast schedule we're, we are like you know uh, getting our hulu fill uh as we go um so like when we talk about like the week like what was our you know our, our week in pop culture like and you know what television i watched this week you know like in the past clearly this was very tied to when networks would tell me i was supposed to watch television um and obviously that changed with the dvr um but now i am left to um you know catch up with this on my completely on my own time uh whenever i i, I choose to do so choose choose to do so which in the past has meant i just didn't do it at all. Um, right. So here I am now. Um, I have finally started to latch on to a few television shows. So just really quickly, I'm going to run it down and then we'll loop back and talk about some of these things. Uh, Monday, uh, caught up on a couple episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, which is probably my favorite uh, new show over the last like two, three years or so. Like a spiritual successor. It's, filling, it's trying to fill the 30 Rock hole, 30 Rock sized hole in my life that was left when that show uh, left the air. Uh, I have caught up on The Awesomes, the animated Hulu-only show uh, created by Seth Meyer, which is about superheroes. It's a superhero comedy. I have watched Gotham, of course, the uh, the Batman prequel show about Jim Gordon. Um, Blackish, uh, the aforementioned Blackish, uh, Marry Me, 
which is uh, a, a comedy, which is not so great. Mulaney, which was a multi-camera comedy, which is pretty bad. And, uh, and finally, Cristela. So watched a lot of television this week. Uh, I'd say about like half the shows are things that I watch regularly. And the other half are sort of new shows that are sort of test drove. All right, so so I want to pick a couple of those because the ones that have been talked the most about around me. I mean, Blackish is Blackish good? Blackish is uh, is entertaining. Mm-hmm. It is uh, not the show I was expecting it to be. In that uh, it approaches race from a slightly oblique angle, uh, if that makes any sense. It's like it's it's an, definitely like a, an upper middle class or upper class black professional family that uh, that uh, does not face a lot of racial discrimination. And it's, mm. it's concerned with blackness is mostly about how um, their professional success is somehow alienated themselves from, quote unquote, black culture. Oh, OK. Gotcha. Not what I was expecting at all. Yeah, because I had seen some posts of saying, like, how blackish is not as much about black people as they thought as the, the title might claim it to be. But that makes it that locates it around the Cosby show a little bit. Right. Which is I mean, those are real. These are real issues. This idea of sort of alienation from your sense of sort of ancestral identity. Right. Or like the sure. sort of yeah, the yeah, yeah. you identify. With. So it seems but it seems like it's not taking the route like it's not like Spanglish, the Adam Sandler movie. Right, like, or, or uh, I'm not familiar with it. I mean, I haven't seen it either, but like, I have a general sense for what that's about. Isn't it hard being in a family that's Spanglish? Yes, it is. Good thing we love each other, right? And I'm sure the movie is much more complex than yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like what Cristello was like, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's what you would expect from like from a show like that. And you're saying Blackish is a little bit more oblique, whereas Cristella is a little bit more down the middle. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. That's interesting. And so the other two shows, other than Cristella and Blackish, uh, that you mentioned is you mentioned Gotham and you mentioned Mulaney. Now I hear a lot about Mulaney because you know I travel in comedian circles. Mulaney, you know. Was a big Saturday Night Live guy and big stand-up guy, and whenever a stand-up person, you know, gets a big show, it's like, okay, this is. It's sort of like a lot of comedians kind of see this as something they feel a little personally invested in because they might potentially have a show themselves. This is kind of the dream that they that they might have, right? And and they want it to succeed, uh, so that they either want it to fail, so that it proves that this other person couldn't do it or they wanted to succeed because they want there to be a pie, you know, still around when their turn comes up. Um, so you said it was really bad. Um, and I've heard, I've heard variety of sort of mixed reviews. A lot of it is, I haven't seen it. A lot of people seem to be saying that it, uh, they like, they want it to be better than it is, right? Like they're sort of rooting for it and they hope that it's good. I've heard that, that the Fox executives, that it was, it was originally going to be for NBC, but then they dropped it and then Fox picked it up. And then they, it's it's a lot of his material from his standup is the plots of the episodes of the show. I've heard he's not a very good actor uh, performing in the show. Like he's a good writer and he makes up funny stuff, but he's not, I don't know what, these are the things I'm hearing. Does this resonate with your experience of actually watching it? Like what do you think of the last, the last part certainly does resonate that he is not a very good actor, right? He is just sort of there, like, uh, for lack of a better word, playing himself, being himself sort of like, uh, uh, the everyman kind of thing, which, um, which you can probably say Seinfeld also was guilty slash, uh, guilty of slash, you know, the took credit for, and, and it was able to make work. Um, right. That like, there's not a lot of acting going. He's like, he's a guy like Seinfeld had two modes of sorts, right? Um, Rye and uh, exasperated. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. what I've seen of Mulaney so far, it's been he has only one mode, which is Rye. <laughs> well, yeah, because because well, Jerry was also kind of the straight man that a lot of the plots operated around. I mean, you could, I think, I think you know, Seinfeld lives or dies on the strength of George and Elaine. 
right? I mean, Kramer, as when I was a kid, Kramer was my favorite character, as I think is the case of a lot of children and a lot of people in general. But like the, the plots in Seinfeld episodes that are actually interesting and funny are the George and Elaine plots, right? And like they, I mean, the, he's and Jerry is kind of the straight man that each of them play against, sure, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's and but are there are there other characters in Mulaney that Mulaney can serve as a straight man against, or is the camera sort of oh, firmly yeah, yeah, on? Yeah, 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 yeah. The rest of yeah. the characters. Um, uh, to play similar Seinfeld esque roles and sort of like meaning uh, kooky oddballs that uh, act in much broader strokes uh, mm-hmm. compared to Mulaney, right? There's even like the the kooky neighbor type who um, who who busts in Kramer style, right? Yeah. Who, who who by the way is very much like a poor man Zach Galifianakis, which uh, oh. uh, Marami also shares a, a poor man Zach Galifianakis. That being said, a, a schlubby uh, guy who's there for comic relief, right? Which um, is unfortunate because nobody looked at Zach Galifianakis and was like, "There's a performer who caters to the rich," but uh, <laughs> we need to have a common man Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> <laughs> someone needs to really. Someone needs to bring that to the people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So nothing to loop back to. Like the reason why I brought Seinfeld in for this because of the obvious comparison between the two shows right that the uh the comedian stand-up is being used as a framing device for the show itself right. which was a big part of seinfeld right and i again like i haven't watched a lot, whole lot of television in intervening years between seinfeld and Mulaney, but Mulaney uses uh laney stand-up as a framing uh device for the show itself and i don't think that's a very common thing so you when if you're pulling that trick out of uh out of the book and choosing to do that you are uh, you have to be very conscious of what you're referencing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, Louis Louis does it to an extent. There's stand up, and Louis mm-hmm. they stopped doing it. I think in season three. Um, yeah, you know, totally. I mean, it's something you have to be aware of, right? And there's something you have to balance. It's like not merely enough to either do it or not do it. You have to do it well because there's a high bar that's been set for years and years of experience with it. Right. It's like it's like if you show up in an orchestra hall and you've got a violin, you better be freaking good at that violin. <laughs> and it, whereas if you show up the orchestra hall and you've got a giant length of PVC pipe attached to an electric fan, maybe I'll sit and figure out what it is you're trying to accomplish for a little bit and you'll get a little bit more leeway. It may be if you don't have the pipe fan figured out quite yet. Like as long as you can do something that's impressive, then we'll give you another chance, right? But uh, but if, if it's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know, you think you're a you think you're blowing a pipe fan, but really you're you're playing a violin, that can get you in a rough situation. Well, to, to be clear, like uh, opening a sitcom with a. Uh, with with the with the stand up routine is the violin or the PVC pipe in this analogy? It's like I'm saying that it's much more violin than people might think because there's so much Seinfeld. Even though it doesn't happen okay, yeah, in yeah, a yeah, lot yeah, of yeah. shows, it happens. It's happened in so much Seinfeld, and it's also happened in Louis. But so I mean, it's happened in Seinfeld that, in syndication for the last what twenty years. Or yeah, something, like right? yeah, exactly. So it's like, and there are other shows where it's happened too. But I think even just the fact that it happens at all in Louis demonstrates how much that idea of it happening in Seinfeld is still in the popular consciousness. And and still is something that needs to be kind of overcome or surpassed in some way. You have to do something with Louis. It's like the the tone, you know, the life experiences that are being the, the stories that are related to the stand up have like a much more like in that sense, like the the stand up place is like the safe space, and everything on the outside is like much more dire, right? And things are you know the stakes are are real, and the emotions are raw, and like there's just like the relationship between the things that happen in the show and the stand up comedy that happens at the beginning of the show. Um, it, it's it's not really one of like here's the joke. Now we're going to heighten and spool out the joke, 
right? It's like, and also the joke might not even really be all that related to what happens in the episode, right? It, and then it might be the kind of thing where the connection between the joke and what happens in the episode isn't really apparent until the episode's almost over, right? So, like, there's a lot of ways that Louis spins the relationship between stand-up and sitcom plot, uh, whereas Seinfeld often did it very straight down the middle, where it's like, the events that happen in the show are going to sort of have to do with what the joke is, although sometimes it wasn't the same, right? Um, yeah. and, and if you do that, you just gotta be really good at it, because there's like a hundred bajillion episodes of it, and you can watch it whenever you want. Right, so I did not make it through the entire first episode of Mulaney, right. Right. Um, but I will say that the, uh, the stand-up bit um, I hope it didn't uh, wind up uh, surfacing in the show because it was, frankly, it was kind of dark and a weird choice because it was about how um, uh, very late at night, um, w- women who are walking around on the street um, oh, are inherently, sense. yeah, kind of uh, uh, um, uh, have their guard up against uh, other men who are walking around because they're afraid they will uh, rape, kidnap, or murder them. Yeah, that's that a was that was a joke. It's a very funny joke. It's a very funny stand-up bit. I mean, if you in the original context, I mean, in the context of the New in Town uh, special, have you watched the New in Town special? I have not. No. What is it's, that? It's, it's on Netflix. New in Town is a is like a fully stand-up special that John Mulaney did. That's on Netflix, and most of the material from the Mulaney show, as I understand it, is pulled not just from his stand-up in general, but from the high points of this one stand-up special. Huh. Uh, and and so his joke about. Uh, about basically how it is like he's walking down a hallway, right? I mean, I haven't seen the show, but I heard the stand-up routine. The woman's walking down the hallway. He's walking behind the woman. It's like 3 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever. The woman starts walking faster. He thinks that she's running to catch the train. Yeah. So he starts going faster. Then she thinks that he's chasing her. And, yeah. he's, she's, and then it becomes really awkward because there's nothing he can really say to fix the situation. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the bit. Yeah. yeah. And it plays off of his boyish looks and how he presume he's like, oh, look how harmless I look because I, I have boyish face. Uh, it's a good joke mm-hmm. and it's very well performed in the stand-up set. But I can. But it's also pretty deep in the set. You don't just start from a cold a cold open mm-hmm. with like yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. stalking this woman in the subway station, <laughs> right? Like no, that's that's like not how the joke starts, right? It, you lead into it a lot. There's a What's lot. What's the deal with, with stalking? <laughs> deep, 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 deep. But again, this goes to sort of the phenomenon of Will Ferrelling, which I was indicting it a little bit before as introducing some element of kind of uh, kid gloves into the relationship between art and human experience. But like there's a there's a lot to be said for making the audience feel comfortable, uh, especially before certain sorts of genre performances, like certain sorts of style of theater or art or film. It's like you need to set the mood and the tone for what you want the audience to experience. Right. And you have to understand that certain things work after. After you've established the tone, but not before. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy is a great example where it establishes the tone in a couple of like it establishes the tone twice, right? It establishes the tone of like this is a space movie, and then it's got like the whole uh, you know come get your love, and it's and the tone just abruptly shifts. But both those tones make the audience feel comfortable. It's interesting right? you mentioned that Guardians of the Galaxy because there's the, in terms of setting the tone. Uh, another thing that happens very early on in the movie is that uh, extreme moment of pathos. Mm. Right uh, of uh, of uh, of Star Lord's mother dying of cancer. Oh um, yeah, oh, and yeah. that you know not having any of that like Uga uh, Chaga Uga Chaga and Rocket yeah. Raccoon scratches That's balls. Kind of that, that all happens before the stuff that I talked about. Right, I forgot that it happens before. Yeah. Right, yeah, starts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. That's that's a good point. And it starts with a moment of extreme, and so does Up. Starts with like is the yeah. best example mm-hmm. of, of recent memory of like starting with extreme pathos. 
so it's so it's interesting because there are also there are things in the way that that is shot, right? All the soft lighting, you know, and and the sort of familiar elements of boy boyhood, and like even the outfit he's wearing and the setting that he's around, like the 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 uncle figure, the grand the grandfather, right? The grandfather who comes to him, right? There's all of these parts of that introduction in the beginning of Gardens of the Galaxy with the mother dying of cancer that are comforting, and are, at the same time it's pretty sad, but it's also like really treating it with like we really don't want this to ruin everything for everybody we want you to be sad it's sentimental it's mournful we're grieving but like this is not a moment of horror right like not yeah re- yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good way yeah. to put it and then so we really don't want people to have that squeaky alarmed scared horrified reaction to this we want them to experience the sentimentality of it you know but we don't want we don't want things to get out of hand so we're going to manage the tone and then it, Guardians of the Galaxy does the other two tone it almost like it has to establish its tone twice just to make sure it gets as far away as possible from the initial tone that it set up while at the same time of course coming back around to it and approaching it which is part of what makes the movie so brilliant but anyway um so you're so basically mulaney failed at being guardians of the galaxy is what we're saying <laughs> in so many in so many different ways <laughs> there's so many ways that mulaney isn't like guardians of the galaxy so you were only willing to watch 15 minutes of it is what you're saying yeah Right. Uh, I mean, just to quickly talk about some of the other shows on here. Like, we haven't talked a little about Brooklyn Nine Nine on this podcast. I think we've uh, had at least one or two posts on on, on the site. That show is really hitting its stride. Uh, is immensely entertaining, uh, due in large parts to Andre Brower, uh, who's, who's who's playing it straight. Um, but like every once in a while, it will slip through with uh with, with some amazing comedic comedic bits there. Um, and what else? Oh, the Awesomes. Uh, has a lot of uh, entertaining, funny moments. is is very much uh, a, a sort of a post superhero kind of kind of movie that that speaks to the, the particular moment that we're in right now. Is also an interesting thing about like you know digital only types of things and uh, and and how that distribution model uh, can get a show out there without uh, any of the traditional TV uh, mechanisms that we have before. Um, and uh, yeah, that's 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 that was my week. Um, lots more television than usual, but uh, starting to become the norm for me. It's a good week. Mm, cool. Excellent. Well, can I tell you, I mean, my week was a little different. Um, my pop culture week was a little bit different. Um, and I want to just briefly, I know we don't have a, a super duper duper ton of time left to plumb the depths of these profound pop culture phenomenon. But one of the other things that, you know, you say you, you now consume television mostly through Hulu, you said, right? I'm sorry, yes, yes, that's yeah. correct. So you Almost mostly watch Hulu. television through Hulu. Um, I, I, my uh, girlfriend, we, she just got an Apple TV um, as well, and so we. And it's funny because we're mentioning a lot of like current shows and current technologies and like current sorts of things right after kind of complaining about not having any money. So I want to assure everybody, we're not getting paid for any of these these reviews that we're doing or anything we're saying about any of these shows or anything. The we're only just about the them. only way that we're going to get paid is if you go to Amazon.com through our affiliate link. Drop set. Buy a drum set or fork, <laughs> forklift. 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 Buy an entire forklift. Buy a grand piano. No, so uh, so I like you know we watch a bunch of Netflix and we watch Netflix and we actually watch things on TV too, just on regular cable. Um, but I saw uh, a bunch of movies, a bunch of good movies. I, I saw Sleepless in Seattle for the first time, which I'd never seen before. I thought I'd seen it before, but I think I'd just seen You Got Mail, and I had never seen Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, that movie's interesting, huh? Um, <laughs> But uh, wait, Sleepless th- in Seattle or You Got Mail or both? Oh well, Sleepless in Seattle is more interesting than You Got Mail, I think. Um, I mean, I really like When Harry Met Sally. I kind of like Nora Ephron. I'm realizing, but um, but very, very briefly on Sleepless in Seattle, I think, I think that Sleepless in Seattle 
is a lot like 24 in that I'm really glad that I got into it after the huge burst of popularity that it had is over because in both cases there was these huge bursts of popularity for this, these properties and that properties were really connected at the time with I think criticisms that a lot of people in the culture were making about the way that the culture worked and and the 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 pop culture property really engaged with that. So in Sleepless in Seattle, it's about like romantic comedies and men and women in dating and, oh, this is so unrealistic and we should have higher expectations for how we interact with each other in these kinds of circumstances. And, and Sleepless in Seattle is also is like, it's also schmaltzy and it lacks. So, okay. But if you watch Sleepless in Seattle outside of the context of it being this like archetypical romantic comedy that needs to define all romantic comedies, you realize it's a very strange movie in which nobody makes any decisions based on any information that they have about their situations but makes them entirely off of intuition or like or like signs or things that they believe are supernatural either supernatural or subconscious uh subtextual cues are the reasons why anybody does anything in this movie and they're also the only reason that the audience is engaged with anything that's happening in this movie are you saying pete that they don't choose their dates based on okay cupid's algorithm (laughs) oh exactly i'm saying that (laughs) that's exactly what i'm saying well i'm saying that like they are they are choosing their dates based well like the good example you know what here's the i'm going to jump right to the unifying factor of the things i watched this week i watched sleep in seattle i watched police academy for about half an hour it was really nonplussed by how bad it was cuz i love police academy but it's not good you know if if we ever made a list of pop culture properties that are most elevated by the quality of their theme songs like police academy would be like number freaking one cuz like the only reason that there are freaking like seven police academy movies is because of that song because there's no other reason to make that many of them those movies um they're 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 racist they're sexist you know and on top of the, those sorts of common signs of in, insults they're like they're shoddy they're kind of low budget you know they're they're cliche they're not particularly well edited right and it's like and i love police academy and i'm saying these things but anyway uh i, I we could have a whole other conversation about like well if you made police academy as a movie for today day how would you do it what is it about police academy that anybody likes right that's worth what's worth saving uh, versus what's like oh my god some movies in the movies in the 80s really were worse than movies today in a lot of ways especially the low budget ones but anyway the big unifying factor was i watched sleep in seattle and i watched Spaceballs, which is a great movie from the 80s such a great movie Spaceballs, so many good so many good memories you guys love Spaceballs too right Spaceballs the movie Spaceballs the toilet paper Spaceballs the lunchbox Spaceballs the flamethrower yes oh man I have I, all these things excellent and are we gonna put that wonderful new YouTube uh, trailer for Spaceballs in the style of interstellar up on the show notes because I really enjoyed that you know Kicking we are. There. all right Great. But the unifying factor is Bill Pullman is in both these movies. Bill Pullman, who was like a journeyman theater actor, right? And who was, who was sort of sort of picked up by Mel Brooks for Spaceballs. He'd done a couple movies, but he was mostly picked up kind of as an unknown because he was able to nail, uh, nail down John Candy and Rick Moranis and didn't need to go for Tom Hanks. Because that, actually, that's another unifying factor between Spaceballs and Sleepless in Seattle, is that originally, I think Mel Brooks, I read this on the Wikipedia page, Mel Brooks wanted Tom Hanks to play Lone Star in Spaceballs, but instead he got Bill Pullman. Because once he got John Candy and Rick Moranis, he didn't have to have a star for the movie anymore. There, there were 
are two big comedians already in the movie and himself, of course. Um, and so in the, that's ironic because in Sleepless in Seattle, of course, Meg Ryan has Bill Pullman, but then goes about getting Tom Hanks. So you, you could, you're, I feel like there's two kinds of people in the world. You're either Meg Ryan or you're Mel Brooks. You're either going from Hanks to Pullman, or going from Pullman to Hanks. I don't know exactly what that means in the context of like other sorts of life decisions, but, uh, it definitely is interesting that those movies are moving in opposite directions. But, Bill Pullman in Sleep in Seattle is is not the right husband for Meg Ryan, and the main reason that the audience is brought on board with this is because he has allergies, right? He has allergies, he sleeps with a vaporator, he sneezes a lot, he has to take medicine, he can't eat a lot of foods. Uh, stuff in the maze allergic to. And this is presented in the movie as something that's like really uncomfortable. And it's the way he's shot around it and the way that he's written in it is it like, oh, he's kind of creepy and it's, it's uncomfortable to be around him and it's not working, right? And it's like, oh, who wants to be with this goober? He's kind of a weirdo, right? Uh, is, is, is Bill Pullman's character in Sleepless in Seattle. But if you step back, it's really just his allergies. And, and so much of it is just being dictated by the way that the eye of the camera is filming uh, the allergies, right? And so... With Sleep in Seattle, then, the, the whole movie is like this. It's like you see Tom Hanks playing with his son on the beach, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, man, this is such a perfect moment that I want to be part of, right? But it's like, you know, a lot of people go to the beach and walk on the beach with their kids, you know, there's, you know and they do it in a lot of different ways. But, like, the perfect way it was shot, all of the ways in which that image, like, connects with things that are in our own subconscious about our expectations about things, um, right? And, it's, and it's, it's all based on these sorts of subconscious cues. Um, one of my favorite things in the movie is uh, David Hyde Pierce and Rosie O'Donnell each giving Meg Ryan relationship advice when their own relationship isn't really working out so good, uh, where they're married, they're married, and it's like they're not in love with the people they're married to. Um, and it's very clear that both of them are gay in retrospect, <laughs> but in the movie it's not raised, right? And so it's like the real issues aren't really talked about. It all operates on this level of subtext and, uh, and also sort of like as elevated like subtext that's like enshrined right um i just think that's interesting like there's a scene where where meg ryan like makes eye contact with tom hanks and then is literally almost hit by a truck right like there's a truck that goes and like drives and and the camera moves and the truck comes right at the camera and so for me this is the movie that's trying to identify you hey look there's a truck getting hit by happening this is communicating to you what's happening in the scene in the same way that their eye contact is communicating about their relationship but meanwhile there's no relationship there's no scene right like it's it's all on that subtextual kind of symbolic level and in that sense if you read it like that i think sleepless in seattle is a lot more interesting and a lot more textured than i think if you read it as like an archetypical romance also you could read it as a meta movie next to a fair to remember right and you could be like oh it's a commentary on a fair to remember let's watch those two movies together anyway that's one thing i watched this week gosh i, I ate up a ton of time with that sorry guys i got excited but the last thing i wanted i wanted to talk about and now we're almost out of time is Spaceballs. Guys, yes. Spaceballs is on Netflix and it's free and you can watch whatever you want. You could be watching Spaceballs right now. I hope that you have Spaceballs on on mute as you're listening to this podcast. And I hope that, you're, that our voices are matching up to the lips moving of people who are <laughs> in the movie. Although I don't think there's anyone in the movie whose lips long move for as long as I've just been talking. How many assholes so. are there on this ship? <laughs> Yo! <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my my girlfriend, I watched Spaceballs with my girlfriend. It was late at night. She was tired. She kind of fell asleep. She kind of stayed up for some of it. Um, She loves Robin Hood Men in Tights, 
right? She loves that movie. And that movie is more current to her. That was a movie she saw when it was relatively new. Spaceball, she just missed, and she didn't see it when it when I mean, I was pretty young when Spaceballs came out, right? Like, I was only, like, seven years old when Spaceballs came out. And um, Girlfriend's just a couple years younger than I am. Uh, she was a little child, didn't watch this movie. Um, but you guys love Spaceballs, right? Like, you've connected with it in, in, in some way? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, like, you know, uh, largely due to our, our love of the source material, presumably. Right? The thing that Spaceballs is spoofing, that is to say, uh, the Star Wars movies and other beloved science fiction properties. Um, I, I don't know. I, like, thinking of, I don't know, I don't know your girlfriend that well, Pete, but um, is that the venture guess? Does she have more sort of affinity towards, uh, you know, the Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie uh, that, compared to, like, Star Wars and science fiction? Maybe that's I mean, part of it? I suppose. I think so. I mean, I, I also think, I really what I think it is, is that this was just not a time period that she was aware of from a pop culture standpoint. Like there's like, I think that also there's an element of nostalgia and there's also an element of like interacting with the work of art at different points in her life. But to answer your question, we did actually just watch rewatch the Disney three Musketeers movie with Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie Sheen, Oliver Platt. Did I talk about that last week? I think cause we watched that last week. Uh, that's also available. Well, no, I think we might even rented that one. Um, and yeah, I think she has more of a connection with that subgenre of movie than with the star Wars movies, but she likes star Wars. She actually loves, um, um, the Lord of the Rings stuff. That's probably the fantasy sci-fi property that she is most identifies with. She loves The Hobbit, mm-hmm. uh, the Hobbit movies. Which, she loved The Hobbit book. Which, um, which uh, that makes me think of something, uh, and then I'll talk about Spaceballs, which when we talk about like these fantasy movies like Lord of the Rings and things like that, the, the thought that came to my mind was like, well, God, isn't that kind of like dying for a proper spoof treatment? Like, you know, Spaceballs lampooned uh, uh, Star Wars and things like that. But then I remembered like, well, that doesn't really happen anymore. You have, uh, what do you have? Like uh, scary movie and epic movie. These like, uh, from what I understand, like really slapdash, um, uh, completely uh, like uh, money grab types of movies that pass for spoofs now and that the type of thing like uh like uh, i guess the naked gun movies would spoof cop movies and and, and space balls those are things like that's basically a dead art like they don't literally don't make these kind of movies anymore i mean i don't want to describe it as a dead art i did was recently watch the starving games which is the netflix available oh my gosh you saw that it is it's, it's pretty bad um and, and i'm not i'm not necessarily willing to say that it's a dead art as much as i'm willing to say that like it's quite possible that a lot of these really great movies that are in this genre are all made by the same people <laughs> and Mel they Brooks were just Mel and, and the uh, Sucker brothers the right brothers, yeah and they were so good at it and they right? stopped being good at it at some point too like like did anybody remember the mafia the, oh, the Godfather yeah. spoof. Jane Austen's Mafia, right? I think it was Jane we Austen's Mafia. We talked about that on the podcast like five years ago. Um, <laughs> oh, we've talked about everything on this podcast. That's true. That's true. Yeah, Jane Austen's Mafia with Jay Moore and Lloyd Bridges and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so back to Spaceballs, right? Like, I've definitely several times have thought, like, well, wasn't that a missed opportunity, huge missed opportunity when Star Wars Episode One came out to do Spaceballs Episode One? Yeah. Well, they tried. Think, to do why it. did that happen? They, they actually made a Spaceballs animated series in 2008. Really. Uh, yeah, they brought it back. Um, Gosh. They tried to make a remake a movie, but it just didn't. It just didn't work out. Um, they 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 attempted it, um, but I think they just missed the they just missed the boat a little bit on it. But I mean, you know, like John Candy was gone, and um, I think he was right. Did John Candy die? That I'm, yeah, Maybe pretty John sure John Candy, Candy was dead by by 2008. Yeah, he died in 1994, so he was gone for a long time. But yeah, it's like and Rick Moranis had retired. Um, but yeah, it's uh, – I mean I was thinking when I was watching that movie, why wasn't there one of these for the Harry Potter movies? 
right? Like that was the one that for some reason stuck out with me. Yeah. But then if you actually look at the scary movies, they do all those things, right? Yeah, everything uh, gets tossed into there. Literally yeah. everything. Yeah. Now I will say, I will say, like without a a uh, with, without a shred of reservation or irony, that not another teen movie is, which is again much older, two thousand one, right? Is not another teen movie, but not another teen movie deserves to be in the same category as movies like Spaceballs and Robin Hood Men in Tights, in oh. the sense that it is, it is. I, I think that movie's really good. I, I love, and of course, it's one of the movies that introduced the world to Chris Evans, you know, who is now of Captain America fame, right? Uh, and uh, I just, I just really love that movie, and I, it's, it's so funny, it's so full of references, and and the characters are strong, and it just has good pacing, and I don't know, there's just, there's, a, there, I think really when you're saying there's like a polish to it, right? And it's like a combination of high production value, a faith that the movie is going to be good when you're working on it so you don't leave things in it that are bad, right? Like a high standard. <laughs> like, I mean, if I'm watching a movie like The Starving Games and I'm like, okay, that scene was pretty good. That scene was pretty good. Like, there's a couple of good jokes in here and the lead of this movie isn't doing too bad. And then there's just a scene that happens and I'm just like, this is garbage. This is just total unremittent garbage. And and it's like, well, I can look at this for five seconds and be like, just cut it. Don't keep that scene in the movie. It's awful, right? Like, why is it in the movie? And it's like, could you really think of nothing else? And maybe it's like, okay, we had to do this on a really accelerated shooting budget. We have no money, right? Like, we were already written this script three times right like i think that um i don't know whether it's a matter of like professionalism or whether it's a matter of like the people who can inspire confidence in these kinds of projects not working on these kinds of projects in the market segment that they're happening now but i mean you could once end say that spoofs are dead but on the other hand you could also say that spoofs are very much alive because they're they're making tons of them and they're making a lot of money i, I remember i think i t- did i talk about the podcast about um about uh what a haunted house uh did you hear about that movie uh it's not familiar to me no so a haunted house is the wayans brothers spoof of the paranormal activity movies and it had a sequel a haunted house too uh and a haunted house has a higher level of professionalism than you would expect from you've seen this and starving games they're both on netflix and they're free (laughs) but still your time is not though well, I mean, oh, they I, let's just say I was multitasking. Okay, okay, right? okay sure, <laughs> I was sure. definitely multitasking in both circumstances, um, and uh, so I wasn't. As, and also, the other thing about movies on Netflix, and when I say that I've watched them, uh, the Haunted House, I actually watched over the course of five different watching sessions at least. So I would like watch ten minutes of it here, twenty minutes of it there. I definitely didn't sit through it all. Yeah, this is this is the other thing about your particular watching behavior, Pete. That is so uh, so kind of opaque to me, right? Like I don't. Uh, I can't do that. I can't like break up a movie into five chunks like that, right? The um, uh, you know, I, okay. So you're you you are alongside Bink, Belinky in that you will actively seek out something bad uh, in order to watch it and be entertained by his badness. But um, but I you know not even Belinky, Pete, not even Matt Belinky, uh, beloved overthinking it writer. Um, you know, uh, breaks up. He, he, you know, takes his medicine in one shot, uh, when he's watching a bad movie. And we, we, he and I watched something about tunneling to the center of the earth on Netflix once his, his recommendations look completely different than my recommendations, uh, when we log into the Netflix app. So, uh, yeah, I mean, is it like, is, you know, you're vacuuming the house and that's when Netflix is on, or you're like, you know, doing your body weight exercises in the morning or something like, (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I will dispute your saying 
that I watch them because they're bad. I don't watch them because they're bad. I watch them because I because I assume that on some level they're taking some sort of risk. And I the movies that I really enjoy are when I find are the moments that come out of these sorts of efforts where people have the freedom to take risk and they don't have the like the need to sanitize everything for the good of the audience. Right. And it's like in things like that, you sometimes have really surprising, really interesting, really fun and cool kinds of moments. Right. And like, I like those. And that's one of, that's the reason why I'll be like, oh, there's a Wayans Brother comedy that's a paranormal activity parody. Okay. I'll watch that. I'm not going to comment on, in this case, when exactly I watch on house. Cause honestly, I don't even freaking remember when I was watching on house. I just know that I got through it eventually. Um, it might've been while I was sitting around that I should have been doing some work and I wasn't, that might've been, that was probably a main reason I was doing it. It might've been something I was doing after I finished a bunch of work. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I do. Um, uh, and of course by work, I refer to both the site and my improv stuff, as well as my own, my own professional job. Uh, it's a, it is a movable feast of different kinds of work. Uh, and they all kind of blur together sometimes. But so for me in pop culture, I'll say that like pop culture for me can be calming, um, engaging with even a, even like a, 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 a torturously bad piece of entertainment can be something that sort of takes me outside of my own problems. And so uh, a time when I might watch like a 10-minute snippet of a Wayans Brothers comedy would be if I'm like really super stressed out about something and totally crashing and don't know if I can handle it. And I'll be like, oh, like this thing will entertain me and take my mind off it and calm me down. And it's like, okay, so I'll watch A Haunted House for 15 minutes. I mean, part of it is I love movies, and I love pop culture entertainment, you know? And that's why I comment about it and think about it all the time. I don't know. Um, I feel like I, I feel like I've being, I'm being – I feel like this cut me a bit to the quick here. To be like, well, how are you wasting your life? There are so many other things you should be doing than watching A Haunted House with the Wayans Brothers. Hey, man, it's on Netflix for a reason. I'm not the only one who's watching Well, it. yeah, I'm sorry, Pete. I didn't mean to – if overthinking it stands for anything, it, it stands <laughs> for the like – for the principle that we should not begrudge a man his pleasures. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. That- and the other side of it is that the stuff on Netflix is really bad. <laughs> like, like there's a lot – there's like not a ton of great stuff on Netflix a lot of the time, especially in the department of comedies I haven't seen yet. Uh, so it's because I, you know, you, you watch just, cable. Just going to say there, there were for for a minute there, there were a bunch of Jack Ryan movies uh, in the action section. I don't yeah. know if they're still there, but I rewatched uh, Clear and Present Danger and uh, and Patriot Games. And yeah. and my goodness, they, that was time well spent. And Crimson Tide and Hunt for Red October. Uh, just a, just a whole certain period of of the action cinema um, that that was really rewarding to uh, to do as well. Ah, but, you, but yeah, uh, sorry. I want to go into a different. I want to go into a whole different direction with this because I have like so many. I have so many questions about watching Netflix while you're working because I can't do it. I can't do anything that engages the verbal part of my brain uh, while I'm writing. You know what I mean? While Because the verbal oh. part of my brain is occupied with making words um, or, you know, uh, making computer code uh, in, in a lot of cases. And that's, for whatever reason, I find those to be analogous skill sets or at least to use a uh, similar, part of my, similar part of my brain. But... but um, uh, yeah, I mean, when I really have to buckle down and write something, I'll switch to music, 
right? And I'll, I'll play music, often music that doesn't have lyrics, right? Like classical music or like atmospheric music. Um, but if it's the kind of work where it's like, you know, I have to read a bunch of emails or whatever. And the other thing is that I, I also watch it on my phone when I'm, when I'm going on the subway and I'm walking around town because I have a good data plan. So. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's non-trivial data, and you get yeah. you get phone in the subway. Is that just a thing that real cities have now, and that we don't have in Los Angeles? That's probably true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to go commiserate with myself about that. Uh, <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. Uh, on overthinking it, a couple things going on. Uh, if it's still not too late, they haven't actually launched into the game yet in uh, the Overthinking It Book Club, which is taking as its book. Um, Final Fantasy VI or Final Fantasy III, how, depending on you know whether you count in in base six or I don't know um, the uh, uh, the uh, introductory podcast has been published and uh, this week we'll have the the first episode so play a bunch of you can like uh, stay up for the next thirty six hours play a bunch of Final Fantasy and catch up to where uh, no 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 it's not that high a cost of entry I don't I don't mean to make it uh, make it sound like it is and. Uh, there is a uh, an uh, edition of the Overthinking newsletter that is going to be published this week, and I'm not going to say when. You do not know the day nor the hour that the Overthinking It newsletter is going to be published, so let me just say you should subscribe uh, on the homepage of Overthinking It. Use our affiliate link there when you buy stuff from us at Amazon, and listen next week when there's another show. But until next week, uh, we're here for you all the time at www overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve